0: This is the Read, Write, and Create podcast, the podcast where you get a bite sized session of creative writing coaching from me, Lori L. Tharps. I'm an award winning author of both fiction and nonfiction, a journalist, and a former college professor. I've spent more than 20 years writing, teaching, and coaching creative writers, and I created this podcast because I want to help as many BIPOC writers as possible get their stories out of their heads and out into the world. So, let's go. On today's episode of Read, Write, and Create, I've invited Tracy lewis Jiggets to the podcast to talk about her life and experiences as an African-American writer because Tracy has truly done it all. She's the author of 20 books with her two most recent titles being Black Joy, Stories of Resistance, Resilience, and Restoration, and Then They Came From Mine, Healing from the Trauma of Racial Violence. Tracy has also penned best-selling memoirs for several public figures and celebrities, including the Tabitha Brown and Yusuf Salaam of The Exonerated Five. We're recording this episode on January 17th, 2023, and Tracy recently found out that her book Black Joy, was nominated for an NAACP Image Award, so there's that new feather in her literary cap as well. Over her 20-year career as a writer, Tracy has self-published her work, and she's had her books published by major and small independent publishers. She writes fiction, nonfiction, poetry, and screenplays. She's worked in the publishing industry and founded her own publishing company. She's also written articles for publications like The Washington Post and Oprah Daily. Today, Tracy is a full time writer, but that is a recent development. Like most writers, Tracy has worked dozens of different jobs over the years to support her writing career. Tracy is originally from Louisville, Kentucky, but now lives in New Jersey with her husband and daughter. In this episode, I'm going to be interviewing Tracy, asking her all the questions about her extraordinary writing life. She has so much wisdom to share from how she keeps going in the face of rejection to how she managed to quit her job at academia to write full time, and why it's okay to write in more than one genre. Most importantly, Tracy talks about how and why she is so prolific. She talks about why she makes no apology for centering her stories around Black people and Black culture, and why it's so important to stay ready so you can be ready when opportunities arise. You might want to grab a pencil and a pen because Tracy dropped some gems in this episode. But mostly, I just want you to listen and be inspired. Welcome to the Read, Write, and Create podcast, Tracy
1: Lewis Jiggets. Thank you so much, Lori, for having me. I'm so glad to be here.
0: Well, I'm absolutely thrilled that you are my first official guest on the podcast. So, woohoo! (laughs) Before I start firing off all my questions, I do have to say congratulations on the NWCP Image Award. And I just want to know, how does that feel to be nominated for this particular award at this point in your career?
1: First of all, it feels amazing. It's a long time. I've been in this game for 20 plus years. And so for that book to get that acknowledgement from that organization is very important to me. Black Joy, I wrote it for Black folks. And for the organization that represents Black folks to acknowledge its value, it feels very validating, but also just feels really good in my body. So I'm grateful.
0: You know, I'm so happy. And listeners, I know Tracy very well, but I'm going to act like I don't as for the purpose of this interview. But I am also just so absolutely proud of her. And I just feel like this is the perfect culmination for her career, even though her career is not over or anything. It's not a Lifetime Achievement Award, but um, (laughs) it is very exciting and I'm so proud of you. So, Tracy, I want to start out by asking you two questions that I'm going to ask all of my guests on the show. And that is, first, what do you write about and why do you write?
1: Those are some big questions, Lori. Um, (laughs) What do I write about? Um, I think of myself, even more than a writer, I think of myself as a storyteller. And so whatever format that shows up, whatever genre, whatever mechanism through which those stories show themselves that's the one that I'll use. But I am first and foremost a storyteller. And so I write stories. I write stories, I think, that need to be given air, um, whether they're my own personal stories, whether they're there's stories of characters that just show up in my brain, whether they are the stories of people that we admire that need a vessel like myself to put them down on the page, i.e. ghostwriting or collaboration. Whatever it is, I am a storyteller, and I believe in the value of our stories to heal, to transform lives, to entertain, to bring joy. And that's what's most important to me. So that's the first question. I think the second question is why? That's a big one. (laughs) Because I think the why has evolved over time. And I do know that in the very beginning, when I decided to call myself a writer, that why looks much different than today's why. That why was there was a hunger, there was a desire to, again, as I said, share stories, share my stories in particular. And if I'm honest, for some kind of validation, for some kind of sense of purpose for myself. Today, that's a little bit different. And that might be different because I have 20 years (laughs) of Seeing what works and what doesn't work and understanding that I am enough and valuable regardless of if I never pick up a pen and write another thing is been the important lesson for me. So that now my writing is transformed. It looks different. It shows up differently differently because I don't have that push for affirmation that I had maybe in the beginning. So that's a long way of saying that my why has changed. And why now is really just because at the core is like, I want people to heal. And I think healing is not necessarily about like healing from trauma, although that could be part of it. It really is about experiencing joy, experiencing love, experiencing peace, whether it's through a favorite character, whether it's through somebody else sharing their personal story, You know, I just believe in the power of stories to help us along in this life. And that's why I continue to do it.
0: You're in the right place. That's what we believe here at Rewrite and Create is that stories have the power to heal. Our stories are medicine. So going back to the beginning, did you have any formal training to become a writer? And I'm using become a writer in air quotes. But, yeah, can you talk a little bit about what kind of training you did for your writing career?
1: Out the gate, no. I mean, I've always written. And so I was the person who wrote all of the plays at church, the skits, (laughs) you know, uh, the Easter play. I wrote those. You know, and I would write my hip hop lyrics and my raps because I was in a rap group and I was in, you know, a singing group and we wrote our music and our bars or whatever. And so that's always been part of my life. In my early 20s, I moved to Chicago after graduating from undergrad and um, in Chicago, I got involved in a spoken word scene and started writing poetry. Again, an opportunity to give those stories air. And then... When I moved my first iteration in northern New Jersey and New York City, I moved to there from Chicago, I decided that there was a transition from the spoken word to the literary word that I needed to make. And so I began writing stories and working on a no- what would ultimately be my first novel and captured by that and just began to do the work, just started telling my stories and going to writing workshops and going to screenwriting workshops and testing different genres and all of those kinds of things. It wasn't until much later that I actually did decide to go and get an MFA in creative writing later on in life. But that was easily 13, 14 years after really deciding to call myself a writer. And that was mostly so that I could find a way to stabilize myself financially by teaching writing while I was still doing my thing and writing my books and putting my work out into the world. So I did eventually get the quote-unquote training (laughs) for writing, but I had been doing it by that time, like I said, forever.
0: You said it was several years. What made you decide to get that MFA at that time? Were you already thinking like, oh, I'm going to start teaching or something? Or was there another impetus at that point in your career to say, yeah, I'm going to get an MFA?
1: If I'm honest (laughs) now, I mean, I probably would have had a different answer back then, like some maybe more appropriate answer. But honestly, now it was because by that time I had gotten married and had a daughter. And so the life that I lived before, which was just like, I'm going to write this book, I'm going to do this little job here. You know, I was adjunct teaching a little bit just on the sheer fact of what I'd put out into the world already. I'd gotten colleges to overlook the fact that I didn't have that degree and allow me to teach. But in order for me to get them benefits (laughs) and to get that salary, I knew that I needed to figure out how do I do what I do and still live and eat and, you know, help take care of my family along with my husband. So, that was probably the driving force for me going, because I already had a graduate degree. I had an MBA. So it wasn't like, oh, this was an opportunity for me to get a graduate degree. I already had one, just not in a field that would allow me to write. And so I uh, that was probably the driving force for me to go get the MFA, because I did not, and I do not, feel like I needed it to do what I do. But I did need it in order to, get that bi-weekly paycheck.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's a perfect segue for my next question because a lot of writers do want to know, do I need to get an MFA? Do I need to get an advanced degree? Do I even need to major in writing as an undergrad? So you did mention that you were writing anyway. What do you think was the best education, in air quotes, for becoming a better writer before you got the MFA? Like, what do you think helped you be a writer in those years before you went back to school?
1: Other writers, that probably is the best training ground. Like, I don't believe that you need to go out and run out and get an MFA. Is there value in it? Do you learn a lot about the workshopping process and getting people who may not necessarily get you to look at your work? And like, is there some value in that? I think there is. Will you be reading texts that you probably would have never read before? Absolutely. But I think the biggest education for me was reading and talking to and working alongside other writers, studying other writers. So here's the thing. It's not mandatory to go get an MFA. That's not necessary, but it is necessary to study your craft. And so that may show up in the books that you read. That may show up in the small workshop groups that you might form with other writers, It may show up with you, you know, hiring an editor just to take a look at your stuff and review it and give you feedback. That is necessary. The school piece, that's not necessary. But you have to be studying the way it's been written, even if you plan to do something outside of the box. Even if you say, I'm going to create my own form. It's going to be amazing. I used to always tell my students that you can't tear up a car if you don't know how to put it back together. So you may say, you know, I want to do something so original and I just kind of break all of the rules and everything, but you can't break rules you don't know. It's like, what are the rules? And so I studied the rules and I studied the way Zora Neale Hurston would write as opposed to a James Baldwin, as opposed to a Terry McMillan and so on and so on and so on. And I studied what they did and I read what they did. And I paid attention to, I think in hindsight, I paid attention to how different works made me feel because that helped me determine what I needed to pay attention to in order to allow a reader to feel whatever it is I wanted them to feel in my own work. You know, if I'm writing something that I want people to experience joy, then I'm going to read something that. Gives me joy so I can understand how they accomplish. Are their sentences shorter? Are their sentences longer? Do they shift points of view? I don't know. Like, what happens? And I think that just comes from reading. It just comes from being around other writers. Other writers make you better, even the ones that maybe are harsh. They're the ones that make you better. And so I think that's probably the biggest kind of education I got prior to going to MFA.
0: And I think that that's so instructive for writers who are listening right now. Just because you don't need to get an MFA doesn't mean you don't need to study the craft. I think that's really key that people hear that, but that it's very doable on your own in the sense that you can go to a reading from an author. You can email an author. I mean, today we live in a world where you can just connect with authors very easily without a middleman, so to speak. And obviously the key thing is to read, but I like also what you said that, If you're trying to write something about joy, go see how other people did it and copy them. We know that mimicry is what artists do. I mean, it's not, you can't copy somebody's book. Plagiarism is one thing, but you can take your inspiration and learn how the masters do it. And then you can do it yourself. You mentioned James Baldwin's or Neil Hurston, Terry McMillan. All of those writers are Black. You're Black. Tell me what your Blackness is how that impacts, influences, or inspires your writing.
1: For me, first of all, my mom always put Black authors in front of me when I was little. I used to sneak and try to read her Song of Solomon by Toni Morrison, right? Like, you know, and had no business reading that at the age that I was reading it. I would sit, go to the restroom, sit on the toilet, and she'd have Essence magazine in the back. Now I'm all of eight, had no business reading about You know, the way to get your man's attention, right? (laughs) You know, for in Essence Magazine, but I would read it. My mom was an avid reader. She also had Cosmopolitan, but I think my interest was drawn to people who look like me, people whose stories reflected the things that I saw around me. And I think that that is incredibly important that there are a diversity of stories out there and that the stories that I'm trying to tell, reflect a particular experience, which for me is my experience as a Black woman. And so I'm drawn to those stories, right? Like I'm drawn to the Terry McMillan, the... K. S. A. Layman, the Jasmine Ward, the like, and the thing is, is that we're not a monolithic people. Blackness is not monolithic. So, within the context of people who look like me and reading their work, there's a deep diversity. You're not going to read the same thing if I'm reading more an urban book versus a uh, literary fiction versus you know, like there's going to be a diversity of experiences that I can take in even within that context. But it's important for me. I wrote in Black Joy that Blackness is not monolithic, but you know it when you see it. We know it when we see it. And so there's a thread of something, even in those diversities of stories, you know, of somebody that may not have lived a life that I've lived or vice versa, that I connect to and that feels resonant in me, even if that experience and story is very different. And I just feel like I want to continue in that thread, in that theme of working to tell Black stories. And whether that's film, whether that's stage plays, whether that's nonfiction, fiction, poetry, I want to normalize our stories in the larger canon. And that is imperative to me for future generations, that when they read back, that they're isn't just the Harlem Renaissance, but there are all of these other stories that they can grab hold to that look maybe closer to their experience or maybe totally different, but has that thread of Blackness that they can connect to and hold on to that is reflective of their sensibilities and their culture. I mean, it's just, it is a part of me. I'm going to read Black books to the day I die. I'm going to read Black authors to the day I die. I don't apologize for maybe not reading the latest white authors' books, even though I do read books by white authors. But like I'm not apologizing for my emphasis to be on Black writers and Black authors, because that's what has grounded me in my own work. And
0: here at Read, Write, and Create, where we are celebrating and supporting BIPOC authors, that's the messaging here. In fact, last episode is just about that. In fact, to not apologize for telling your stories, we need more stories. I mean, the statistics are startling, you know, 95% of the fiction titles that were published, like over the last 40 some years, were published by white authors. So it's like, even if we, you know, tried our hardest, we still can't make up for You know, we're never going to catch up in terms of what's out there. And like you said, for future generations. So thank you for sharing that. Now, you also said that, you know, whether you're writing screenplays, fiction, nonfiction, you know, it's going to be grounded in the Black experience. So let's talk about that for a second, which is screenplays, fiction, nonfiction. Tracy, you've done it all. Like you've literally written everything. And I love that about you and your work and your courage, to try all these different forms of writing. But a lot of people say, or will tell, particularly emerging writers, they'll say, you know, you got to pick one thing or you can't do all the things. I mean, if you're a novelist, you're a novelist, right? If you're a screenwriter, you're a TV writer, you're you're over there. Talk to me about your interests in writing in general, but also where do you get the courage to say, I'm going to try these things. I want to do it. I'm going to do it. Maybe it's courage, maybe it's permission, like you give yourself permission, but how you approach this idea that you can write whatever you want to.
1: Honestly, it never occurred to me that I couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Like it never occurred to me that, you know, there was some barrier That I had, if I'm writing poet, like I said, I started off as a spoken word poet and then became a literary poet and all of that. Like, you know, it never occurred to me that I couldn't write that novel that was burgeoning in my brain as I was still writing my poetry. And I think there's some value when you start off independent. There's some value to the naivete, right, that you don't know that the industry says you should box yourself in or you should focus. Like, you don't know it. You're just like, oh, this is kind of cool. Let me try this. <laughs> you know, And you just do that and you maybe find your, your lane and you kind of ride that lane and then you decide you want to switch lanes and cool, I'm going to switch lanes. So I think the first part of that is that it never occurred to me that I could not do it. And because it did not, I just did it. And then I began to study the craft in each one of those genres so that I could understand what I was doing. And then it kind of flew from there. At the same time, I will say, I do think there's some value in focusing in on a particular genre for a season, a period of time. One of the mistakes that I've made over the last year is maybe jumping too quickly between genres and not being able to do my best work as a result of that. So I say, it never occurred to me, go for it, do your thing, it's cool. But I say that with a caveat that there is value in, if you're working on a novel, to work on that novel and to focus on that novel and to do your work around that novel and not jumping back and forth. Maybe later on in your career, down the road, you can do that better. But initially, it is good to focus. And so I say, again, do it with a caveat. I also think it's quite ableist, For anybody to say, oh, you should not write across genre, you should not do, because the truth is there are some brains that have the capacity to move across genres and need to do that in order to be good. Right. You think about ADHD or just people with different neurodiverse types of brains that move at a pace that's very different than maybe the neurotypical brain. And the reality is for you to say, no, don't do that. And that's actually what they need to be good is an ableist standpoint that I think the industry should address. I don't know if that is you know, as I began to learn that, yes, people said you're doing too much, right? You need to focus on a genre. I don't know if that's being said too much anymore, but for those who are saying it, they really need to think about what that means for the neurodiverse brain that needs to move back and forth between projects or whatever. And so that's my point. So yes, it did occur to me. So that's the reason why I do it. Courage I think that the courage came from not really knowing, not really knowing that I should pump the brakes or stop. I think that now I'm more conscious of how I move. Like I have a novel in the back of my brain right now. I have um, one that I've been working on for years, but I've been doing nonfiction for a season. right? And I recognize that I had to put that on the back burner for a second as I get these nonfiction stories out. But I don't know if I would call it courage. It's probably just more of like, what you mean? Like, <laughs> like, what you mean I can't do that? It's my computer. It's my laptop. It's my brain. I can write what I want to write. Now, you talk about publishing. That's an entirely different conversation. I can write across genres all day long. Can I publish across genres in the way that I want to? eh, that's a little bit more messy.
0: Right. I think that's where when I say, people say stay in your lane or do one thing, you know, whether you're applying for an MFA, you can't be like, I would like the MFA in all the things, please. (laughs) You gotta be like, fiction or nonfiction, right? right? There's exactly. very few programs where you can be like, I will have a buffet of all the courses. And if you're publishing, they want to know, what are you a novelist or are you a nonfiction writer? I mean, poets are over there in the corner. You're not in the right building even. So that's where it's kind of tricky, like you said. But I think the point is, If you want to write poetry on the side while you're crafting your novel, in a lot of ways, poetry is going to help your novel, right, if you're playing with your words that way. And I know when I started my career, it was in journalism and that ability to interview people and observe people, um, write dialogue, all of that helped me get ready to write my novel. So I think writing in different genres can actually be great practice to move between genres, if you will. So that takes me to my next question, Tracy, which is longevity. You've been in this business, you said, for over 20 years, right? I mean, you've been writing since you were young, you know, church plays and all that. So what's kept you going? Because we know, I mean, it's kind of a common story of the frustrated writer that gave up. But how did you and how do you continue to stay writing, to stay in the game, to not give up?
1: Yeah, I think at a spiritual level, it's just the stories keep calling me. And so at that level, I'm never, ever going to stop writing, even when I stop writing. And hopefully you catch that, right? Like, you know, even when you never heard of me or whatever, you you know, my name goes away or whatever, like, I will always write. And I think the stories continue to call me. And my interest is always in books and stories and movies and all those kinds of things. In terms of like specifically how I keep going, I think there is value in writing across genres. There is value in being able to write (laughs) effectively. You know, I became a ghostwriter because I could write. And I knew how to translate stories. and I knew how to help somebody take their stories that they had and put it down on a page and make it readable and engaging and all those kinds of things. I never set out and said, ooh, I want to be a ghostwriter. I want to be a collaborator. I want to help all the celebrities tell their stories. No, that's something I never thought I would be doing. But because, you know, it's kind of like, and I come from a church background, right? Like your gifts make room for you. That notion of that is just like, I could write, though. And so, yes, I was writing my own stuff and I was publishing my own stuff and all of that. Great. And I was trekking along. But my ability to write opened up another lane for me to jump in. In order to stay in this business, in order to have that longevity in this business, and for more people to see my work, to see more eyes on my writing, to say, oh, yeah, you worked on that? Oh, that's dope. Oh, you did a great job. Oh, okay. I mean, the story of Black Joy is absolutely a classic story of exactly that happening, in that I was working as a ghostwriter on a project and I had a ghostwriting agent and, you know, it was just ghosting for a little bit as I was working on my own stuff, as I was freelancing articles and doing what I do. And I happened to write an essay for the Washington Post on Black joy. That's what was on my heart. That's what I'd been working through. I was doing my own internal work around joy and grief and all of that. And so I wrote this piece, got published in the Washington Post as many pieces had been published at that point in my career. It just so happens, though, that my ghostwriting agent sent that essay out to all of the agents of my clients, all of my people that I was ghosting for, and one of them happened to say, does she have somebody representing her own work? It would not have happened had I not been in the, number one, the space where my writing had made room for me to ghost on a project. And if I had not continued to be working on my own stuff and writing my essays and whatever, that allowed for somebody to say, Oh, I know she does this, but does she have somebody representing her for her own work? Oh, absolutely not. How can I, you know? (laughs) And so that created this opportunity for me that probably would not have existed and opened up another lane for me to then switch out of the ghostwriting lane and back into the lane I always wanted to be in, which was my own work being out into the world. And so when I think about longevity and the moves that we make, the one thing that I have always done and held on to, and Lori, you probably know this too, because you know me, is I just keep going. No matter what, I'm going to tear up a little bit because I'm in the space, I think, right now where I'm in a pivot. And I think part of just keep going means that you're not afraid to pivot. You're not afraid to move a lane if you feel compelled to. You don't always change lanes. And there have been times in my life where I've changed lanes too quickly. But I do think that you have to be willing and open to that pivot that comes and being open to what the opportunity, because in my case, that pivot brought me right back to the lane that I wanted to be in, in the first place. And if I had not have said, if I was like, no, I'm good here in this lane, that I would never have made the pivot and then never have had an opportunity to get back into the work that I really wanted to do. So I think sometimes our lives go in directions, especially as artists that we are like uncomfortable, like what's happening, like what, ha- you know? And the key to longevity to me is keep going, pay attention to the pivots, pay attention to the shifts and the changes. And don't think that because a pivot or a shift is changed that somehow you're leaving your dream behind because your dream actually might be on the other side of that pivot, on the other side of that shift. And there's maybe some things you need to learn that you haven't gotten yet, that you need to pivot for a minute to get. So that's been my take on longevity. But longevity to me doesn't mean 20 years in the business. Longevity means that 100 years from now, the same way we pick up Zora Neale Hurston and her work from 1920 or you know, so-and-so's work from... 1940, that a hundred years from now, somebody will be like, man, have y'all read Black Joy by Tracy Michelle Lewis tickets? You know, that they will be still reading it. That to me is true longevity, that there's generations. And that's the reason why I focus on our Black folks and Blackness in my work, because there's generations down the road that need our stories in particular.
0: Absolutely. And I don't know if you said this, or I just associate this with you, this phrase of, I think you did say this to me at one point, that you stay ready so you can be ready. Yeah. And that's what I think about. You just have been writing. You're like, I've always been writing. So when the opportunity, this big agent says, do you have somebody? And you're like, uh, no. And then do you have work ready? Didn't you have like six tr- <laughs> like manuscripts like in My- a drawer where you're like, oh, you want <laughs> you want a book? You want a children's book, an adult? I got it all.
1: My agent laughs. We laugh about this a lot always because I call it the vault. We talk about different opportunities or whatever that might be coming. And like. I have a vault worth of stuff I've written, right? Some good, some horrible, but like I have a vault worth of work and content. My take is like, just because y'all just seeing me, you're just now paying attention, but I've been here and I've been working and I've been having books and ideas and yes, children's books and plays and all kinds of stuff in the vault. So what you need? You need a play. You need a movie. You need a TV show. You need a book. Like I've been doing this work and I've been allowing the creativity to come forth onto the page. And now, I mean, just because you notice me doesn't mean that I'm brand new, you know? Oh, there it is. There
0: it is. <laughs> She's not brand new. Um, What Tracy just said is that she doesn't write because she has a contract, because she has a job opportunity. She writes because she's a writer. She writes because she has stories to tell. She has a mission. She has a purpose. She has a why. And she writes. The stories keep coming to her. So she's been in this business for a long time. And When one opportunity came, she didn't say, no, 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 I don't want to be a ghostwriter. I'm only about my work. She said, "Okay, let me try this new thing because I'm a writer. It's a form of writing. I'm going to try it. She tried it and that opened up another door. And then that's going to open up another door. So we're going to be seeing Tracy's name on the TV screen in a minute or two or on the movie screens a minute or two because she keeps writing. That's what she does. She's a writer, so she writes. She doesn't only write. She's not a contract writer, meaning she only picks up her pen when someone dangles money in front of her. She writes because she's a writer. And then when people need her work, it's there. You stay ready so you can be ready. Stay ready so you don't have to get ready. There you go. There you go. (laughs) That's it. And you stay ready by writing because that's what you are. Writing about this right now that if you are a writer, then you write. If you're a runner, you run if you're an artist, you make art. That's what you do. So Tracy, what is, if you can think of a time in your writing career where things didn't look good. Yeah. Maybe you got a lot of rejections. Maybe you couldn't sell anything. Maybe you were broke. What kind of mindset work do you do for yourself to get yourself out of those periods? Because everybody has them. You can be the best writer. You can be Pulitzer Prize winner, New York Times bestseller, there's going to come hard times. And we're sensitive people. We don't have bosses to like, you know, take us out for lunch. So what do you do when it gets hard or things don't look good as a writer? How do you, what's your self-talk or routine to get through the hard times?
1: I honestly think that it is one of those things that has changed over time. I think now for me, I'm in a stage of my career where when rejection comes and you're right rejection will come because of the nature of this business and the stage of career you might be in you might be broke <laughs> and broke is relative for different people some people like are broke but they still eat every day some people are broke and they like trying to figure out how they're going to eat so like whatever broke means to you that might be you <laughs> in this business you know and i've been all of those things for many years. <laughs> <laughs> but I think the stage of career I'm in now is I'm grateful in that when I get rejection and I still do, or when things aren't going well, or the feedback I got from the editor is just like, oh my God, you know, I got to rewrite it or whatever. I try to remember the wins. I try to remember the times when. I've been here before. And so because I've been here before, I know that there was a time when I was winning or when the edicts came back and they were great. And I try to remind myself that this is just the thing in this moment on this day. And tomorrow is another day. And I'll get up tomorrow and I'll try again and I'll work again and I'll do what I need to do for the next day. I try to... Not compartmentalize it, but just decide to not allow any rejection or any low times in the writing to be projected onto my future. And like for it to be the thing that defines whatever else I do from now on. Because if I'm getting rejected now, I can just as easily get an acceptance the next day. That's where I am now. Now, earlier on in my career, that was a little hard because I didn't have nothing to look back on. (laughs) I didn't have no wins to look back on. So I think, and I'm going to say something that maybe some writers would disagree with, as much as I say, keep going and keep writing, it's okay to take a break it's okay to rest. It's okay to step away from the work for a bit, not forever, not for a long time, but it's for a period of time, whatever that needs to be for you so you can regroup, so you can sell it yourself because above and beyond what you're the output, we have a, a very ugly fascination with productivity and output and how much we're putting out there. I was a proponent of that for a long time. Just keep, keep putting, just put, putting stuff out into the world. And I would say that that wasn't the best way to work. That was me kind of getting caught up in what capitalism and tying my value in what I produce. Now I say, yes, I keep writing, but I also believe in the power of resting and taking a break from the work. So I tried to incorporate uh, specifically two months out of the year, one month earlier, one month earlier, where I take a sabbatical and i like, I'm not, writing at all because I need the downtime. Some of where your rejection might be coming from, from the work might be because you're not doing your best work because you haven't given yourself time to pour into who you are as a human. That's where I think I've lost a lot of time in the middle parts of my career because I had conflated my worth and value with the writing and the work that I was putting out. And so if I wasn't putting out stuff and writing and hustling and trying to get this person to notice me or this publisher or whatever, then I somehow was not valuable or worthy. And so once I began to do the internal work to untangle those two and realize that regardless of the writing of work, I'm still worthy. I still am worthy of rest and sleep and comfort and you know self-care and soul care. And then I can return to that part of myself when things are maybe not as great in the writing, you know, in my career. And so that's what I try to do. I try to take those sabbatical moments to reset and refresh and regroup and to pour into myself. I'm not always good at it. (laughs) Oh, I'm a work in progress, but I, I'm conscious of it and I'm aware. And so meditation and deep breathing and breath work and therapy and all of those things are part of my arsenal of grounding myself. So I don't get so caught up in, I got to get the next thing out. I got to get the next thing out. I mean, I could easily do that and maybe have more success in the long run, but at what cost? At what cost to my mental, physical, and emotional health?
0: And I hope everybody listening, you know, really hears that because Tracy just gave you a way to bypass (laughs) those early years where you're going, oh, you know, if I'm not a bestseller, then I suck or I'm not good enough or I should give up, or whatever it might be. Rest is important. Taking a break is important. And that's also, again, where we might shift and work on a different project. If the novel isn't coming or you got rejections, maybe take a moment and work on some poetry. Do some angry spoken word poetry. It helps. It really helps. Write a song. You know, stay creative, but maybe put the work down for a moment. Put the thing that's giving you angst down for a moment. Tracy, I wanted to just Could you tell us kind of in succession the like nine to five jobs you've had to support your writing habit? I want people to understand what a writing life can look like, Um, that oftentimes we are not full-time writers, even those of us who are successful writers, if you will, but that we are doing things in the background to keep us able to write what we want to write. Can you just give us a kind of like a summary of the career that you've had that has been done simultaneously with your writing.
1: Ooh, <laughs> I have done a lot of things. I've done everything from telemarketing to, I worked in sales and marketing for fortune 500 companies and technology firms. I was the B2B salesperson. I moved on from there and had a brief stint of like creating a uh, full-time couldn't eat. So therefore <laughs> decided to go back. I've worked in retail. I've done personal like assistant positions. I've tutored a uh, substitute teacher. Um did not love that at all. (laughs) Then got into academia, was an adjunct professor. being For a long time, adjunct professor was kind of what was holding me together as I was getting little bits of money for different things here. I've started my own businesses selling different products. I've sold prepaid legal. I've sold (laughs) Amway. I've sold all kinds of little things. I've created things and art and tried to sell that. I did independently start publishing my work very early on in the early 2000s and start going to different festivals and selling that. And then probably the biggest jump for me was jumping into academia. And so really teaching full-time as I was writing and working and doing all kinds of other things on the side. I also would do a lot of writing for other people, not ghostwriting, but like proposals. I'd write business plans. I spent a good few years working in small business development for Temple University. I spent another few years as a museum educator and curator. Um, So I did that work and then came back once again to academia. And then the last kind of job I had or career I had prior to working full-time was as a a tenured professor. So I taught for the last few years before I took the leap in April 21 in the middle of a pandemic to go out there or not. And I actually, April 22 last year, where I actually decided to just come out of academia completely and write full-time.
0: And what is your full-time writing looks like? what? What kind of work are you doing?
1: So it is primarily right now my own work. So I got the book deal and then I got another book deal. So I'm creating mostly my own work and ghostwriting. Ghostwriting is probably is serving as the stabilizer because I've established myself a little bit as a ghostwriter now. And I've had success as a ghostwriter. People know Tabitha's book will hit the New York Times bestsellers list for like five or six weeks. And so that opens the door for me to have at least a stable amount of work, even as I'm creating my own. So it's mostly just that. I mean, I still do some freelancing, like essays and journalistic kind of things. But it's mostly just creating my own work and ghostwriting.
0: And again, people, just the list of other jobs that you've done just shows that again, just keep going. And I think that if we could like dissect Tracy's brain, there's something in there that says the writing is in the forefront and everything else, you know, you heard all those jobs, they're all over the place. And, you know, she did so many different things, but the writing is the consistent thing. And that's what we do. We do that so we can keep writing because writing isn't going to pay the bills until till you hit a certain status level. And it might not ever. And if Tracy wasn't willing to try that opportunity of ghostwriting and collaborating, she might still be teaching, which is what a lot of writers end up doing. Going into academia or, or even like high school teaching, you know, allows us to maybe have our summers free where we can really write or take sabbaticals and take a whole year off. So there's definitely a lot of ways to support your writing habit so that you can eat, and sleep and pay your bills and have that peace of mind to write because we do need that. The struggling artist can't necessarily be a productive artist because you're too stressed and worried about paying those bills. we already talked about your um, Black identity really informing your work. You are also identify as a woman of faith, and that also is a big part of your work as well. Can you talk a little bit about what authenticity means for you and how like, being yourself has been so primary in the work that you've put out in the world? I think it's really important for writers to hear this because it's so easy to be like, oh, werewolf stories are trending, I should do that. Or dystopian YA novels, that's what I should throw my hat in. Can you talk a little bit about how and why you stay true to your own authenticity in your work and how that has, at the end of the day, proven
1: to be the right thing? I don't have the attention span to do something I don't want to do. (laughs) (laughs) um, I think, you know, it might be cool for a moment and I'll be like, oh, okay, everybody's writing the romance. And I think I can think of, I'm a a creator. So of course I can come up with a great idea. Um, and I have things on my computer that are like half done because I did fall into that. Like, "Oh, I could just write a movie, you know, maybe I'll write an erotic story or, you know, whatever. (laughs) And, but I always come back to what is the motivation What is the driver? What is really pushing you to write this thing? And if the driver is, ooh, I can make a lot of money, ooh, people will be able to see me, this is going to be the hot thing or trending or whatever, I question that. I'm not saying that people who do that is necessarily a bad thing. I just think for me, I question it because in so many ways as a Black woman, I have to compartmentalize myself anyway. Even in my work, I would say up until Black Joy there were times when I, my Black identity was very much up front and my faith identity was very much in the background or vice versa, when my faith identity was very much in the foreground, but who I was as a Black person was in the background because maybe it was a white evangelical space I was in or whatever. And so I think a lot of times we are forced to, for whatever reason, or feel forced to box ourselves in, that for me to do that to myself in my creative life just feels like overwhelmingly hard and heartbreaking to do. So that is something that I've wrestled with, but also something that's important to me that I remain true to who I am. But if I'm honest, Black Joy, which came out last year and I wrote over the course of that previous year, was probably the first time where I felt like I could be my full. Authentic self, meaning that I could be a Black woman, but I could also be a Black woman of faith, but I can also be a Black woman of faith from the South. I could be a Black woman of faith from the South who also moved up North in her adulthood. I could be all of the things. I could be a wife and a a mother, but I could also be a woman that has lived mother, (laughs) had a life, you know? Um, And so I could be all of those things in that collection of essays and allow all of my stuff to be on the page. And that was the most liberating and the most freeing space. And so I want to write from that space going forward in everything that I do. And so that piece of authenticity where you don't have to box yourself in, where you can show up as yourself on the page in the space and be unapologetic about that is the place I think going forward will continue to write from. I think in every book prior to that, I entered it trying to be authentic, but I do, in hindsight, realize that there were parts of me that I held back. You know, So when I was writing Christian fiction for a time, there were parts of me that got held back because that wasn't acceptable in that genre. There were parts of me that got held back when I was writing outside of Christian fiction, You know, more edgier type of things, but I didn't get a chance to bring my faith into that. And so I think now I just don't give a flip. And I was like, if you're going to accept my work, you're gonna accept all of me, all of the nuances, all of the complexities, you know. And I think that's valuable because as black people and as especially black women, we need to see images of people. We need to see work and read work from people that are nuanced, that are complexity, that are not just one thing that are boxed into one way of showing up. Like I, I just I can't do that anymore.
0: That comes with some uh, wisdom and some age, you know, where we feel free to really be our full selves on the page. But the way you said that, how good it felt in writing Black Joy to bring your whole self to the page. And like, you're not going back. You can't put yourself back in a box now. Now that you've seen what it feels like.
1: Don't put baby in the corner. (laughs) No,
0: no babies in the corner. No babies in the corner, especially our Black babies. We don't want the Black babies in the corner. They ought to be out front in front of everybody, full selves. All right. I'm not calling this a lightning round because I feel like I've been bombarding you with questions this whole thing. But these last questions are kind of quick questions for you that will hopefully help our listeners in their careers. But my first question, Okay, I'm going to call it a lightning round because I don't know what else to call it. My first lightning round question, Tracy, can you share a resource or two that has helped you in your writing career that might be of use to other people, whether it's a book, a podcast, a workshop you attended once, an app that you use on your phone, anything that has been useful for you as a writer?
1: I definitely think like there are workshops out there that I attended um, with you, uh, the Hurston Wright workshops in D.C., which was a great way for me to be in a space to share my writing with people who look like me and who maybe had the same intentions around their writing as I did. So I think that's a great one. I always recommend Bird by Bird by Anne Lamott, which is a really great book that talks about the grace you need to give yourself as you're going through the process. Most writers don't even think about this. A thesaurus, friend. (laughs) A thesaurus. Now, that doesn't mean you use it to like grab all the big words, but I think sometimes the tools are things that we got back in kindergarten or first grade that we never really grab onto nowadays because we have so much else at our fingertips. So, yeah.
0: And, of course, people, I will put links in the show notes to the uh, Hurston Wright Writers Workshop and the uh, Bird by Bird, and, y'all, the thesaurus is on your computer, okay?
1: Uh, <laughs> Thesaurus.com, <can>, actually. <laughs> yes. You
0: just type that in. I mean, if you want to go old school and get you a real, like, Hard copy thesaurus and put it on your desk to make you feel important, get that. But really, use that thesaurus. It's a game changer. When you really can't think of another word for beautiful, you're like, what else can I say? (laughs) Okay, next question. Do you have a favorite quote, Bible verse, saying, or a person, like a literary foremother or forefather that you think about when you're like struggling or you're like, I can't do it anymore? I can't. I just can't. Is there a quote or a verse or a You know, you think about the life of Toni Morrison and you're like, yes, Toni, guide me. (laughs) What's your go-to when you need that extra bit of inspiration?
1: Well, uh, Toni Morrison is the godmother, so absolutely to that. Yes, please. But I think I have a quote here on my desk that for this season of my career has been a grounding force, quote, whatever, in my life. And it's, I actually don't know where I got it from, (laughs) but the quote is, if you live by the claps, you will die by the booze. And in this season of my life where, you know, I do have the NAACP Image Award nomination and, you know, I have seen relative success, it's important to stay grounded and to realize that I don't define myself by how high I am or how low I am. And that my value is not in how many people are clapping, who sees me, who knows me, or who doesn't see me and who doesn't know me. And I don't have to live in those high, low spaces. So that's a quote that is really important to me. And I keep it ever in front of me, literally.
0: (laughs) I think that's excellent. And I think it's so important for writers. You know, we, of course, we want to be published. We want people to read our work. That's why we're writing. I mean, that's why most of us are writing and you do have to take into consideration are people liking what I'm putting out there will there be an audience for my next work but I think what you're saying and this so important is that the accolades can't be the reason you keep going and the harsh comments can't be the reason why you stop that's what Tracy would you say what do we got to do
1: stay ready stay ready so we don't have to get ready there you go
0: there you go that's that's going to be the title of this episode it'll be stay ready so you don't have to get ready I'm gonna put that on a t-shirt um so Tracy before we let you go for real for real what are you working on or what can we expect next when's book number 21 20, what where are we I don't even remember but what can we expect next from you what are you working on
1: Well, I do have some collaboration projects that are coming up and as they come out, folks can go to my Instagram page or my social media and find out about those. I think the next thing for my own work is the transition to film and TV. And so I am looking forward to seeing how I might bring Black Joy to the television screen and also just really thinking about the next book project of my own that I have coming up And then they came from mine was the book that came after Black Joy. It came out in September, Healing from the Trauma of Racial Violence. and
0: September 2022, correct.
1: Yes. And um, so this next book that I have, I'm really interested in playing with what you kind of threw out there earlier, which is what does courage look like? And so I don't have a lot of information about that because I'm still in writing mode, but keep an eye out.
0: And where can people follow you and, you know, keep an eye out and get all your books and learn more about you? Where can they find that on the
1: interwebs? Instagram at TMLG writer. So my initials TMLG writer on Twitter is TM Lewis, but everything you can go to TracyMLewis.com. And that's sort of the center point you can get on my newsletter, all of my other side business ventures and everything. Everything is there. All my writing, everything is there. So you can kind of bookmark that also.
0: So, of course, we'll put all of those in the show notes. But Tracy, tell us about the newsletter, because that's kind of new, isn't it?
1: Do you have a new Substack newsletter? Yes, I do. Actually, it's called The Healing Place, and it is an extension of the Heart Space ventures that I, pre-pandemic, pre-COVID, I had these heart space events where writers could come, that we sold books, we had events, we had t shirts, all kinds of things. Um, they were like pop ups. And so I'm in the process of figuring out what that's going to look like. But in the meantime, we have this newsletters. There's like inspirational notes from me, um, information about my books. There'll be videos and other content. There's a premium subscription and then there's the free subscription. I'll always keep some stuff free just for accessibility. But there are some like premium videos and courses and classes that I'm going to offer for those who do the premium subscription. So it's the healing place
0: dot substack.com. We can find that on the website too, right? Yes,
1: yes. Go to so, Tracy M. Lewis for everything.
0: Go to the storefront, people. And you <laughs> can get it all. All right. So um, Tracy, thank you so much for being here on the Read, Write, and Create podcast. Good luck with all of your projects. Can't wait to see you on TV or to see your words on TV. And... I hope you win that NWCP image award. Yay! Ah! (laughs) (laughs) Congratulations again on that. That is so amazing. So thank you so much. Thank you. I hope my conversation with Tracy left you inspired and motivated to write. I hope you feel a deeper connection and commitment to your literary projects and practice. Here are some literary life lessons I want you to remember from my conversation with Tracy. One, stay ready so you can be ready when opportunities arise in your writing life. Two, say yes to different writing opportunities because you never know where they can take you. Three, bring all of you to your writing to create your best work. Four, never apologize for centering your people in your writing. We need more diverse stories in the world, period. Five, You can write in multiple genres, but take the time to focus on getting good on the project you're working on at the moment. Six, you don't need an MFA to be a writer, but you do need to study the craft to be a good writer. Seven, whatever you do, just keep writing. Don't give up, but it is okay to take a break sometimes and rest. And number eight, last but not least, get a thesaurus. All right. That's what we got for the takeaways from Tracy. If you want to hear or learn more about Tracy Lewis Jiggets, please visit her website at TracyMLewis.com. That's Tracy, the letter M, Lewis.com. And there on her website, you can read all about the amazing work she does around healing and storytelling. And you can also find all of her social media handles there as well. Of course, the links are in the show notes. The Read, Write, and Create podcast is produced by me, Lori L. Tharps. Our editor is Brad Linder, and our theme music is by Wattaboy. Be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audible, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you won't miss a single inspiring episode of the show. And if you're looking for more creative writing inspiration, writing prompts, and useful resources for your literary life, be sure to check out all of the amazing content on the Read, Write, and Create website at readwriteandcreate.com. That's readwriteandcreate.com. And while you're there, you can also sign up for the Read, Write, and Create bi-monthly newsletter, which is the first place where you'll find out about my latest classes and creative offerings. So be sure to sign up for that. Finally, If you know any other BIPOC writers who might need a creative pep talk in their life, please share this show with them. You can share it online, in real life, put it on the bulletin board at your office. I'm fine with whatever. I just want the people who need this show to be able to find this show. Thank you. I'll be back in two weeks on Monday. Until then, keep writing.